everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling. With me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Howdy who? And our special guest with us today is an old friend of the podcast. Uh, it has been exactly one year since the last time he was on, and we need to make that a more frequent occurrence. Uh, but Dr. Elliot Tapper, uh, GI expert extraordinaire from the University of Michigan, is going to join us today to talk about some more GI stuff. Great to be back with you. Great to have you. Brandon, you got a case for him? I sure do. Uh, we had a lot of fun last time, and we're gonna we're gonna get back to it. So you are back on the um, the the podcast GI consult service, and um, the I see you as a patient, and you hear about this, of course, a little later. But this was a sixty seven year old female. Um, she has a history of hypertension, some diabetes, GERD, hypothyroidism, um, a little bit of a drinker, maybe has five to six uh, alcoholic drinks per week, um, and about a 25-pack year history of smoking, but uh, quit about a year ago. But she was having maybe three days of some mild fatigue, just feeling run down, but also noticing dark stools. And she presented to her PCP, who ran some outpatient labs, which came back with a hemoglobin of 5.1. So they were worried about a GI bleed or other things, and they referred her to the emergency department. In the ED there, uh, her vitals showed some hypotension. Her blood pressure was only 90 over 40, with a map of about 55, and the heart rate was 110. And she was kind of restless in appearance and uncomfortable looking. Um, And she was saying she felt lightheaded when she was ambulating by this point. They ran some labs, and they noted a hemoglobin of now just 4.9, hematocrit of 15. The white count was 13. The platelets were 110. The creatinine was 1.5, and the BUN was 75. And the potassium was 5. That's about all that's worth noting. So they transfused two units of red cells. And while she's in the ED, uh, she passes a, a bowel movement, which is sort of moderate in volume, and it's, it's loose and, and dark-looking. They described it as looking like melana. Um, Her blood pressure picks up a little bit with the blood, but it seems to kind of trend back down again. And they're just sort of worried about her, so they admit her to the ICU. That is about when you hear from her. Um, The ICU team gives you guys a call. They say, you know, we think this lady probably has a GI bleed. Right now, um, we repeated our labs again. Now the hemoglobin is 5.5, so it responded a little bit to the blood, but not very much. The heart rate's still 105. Now the blood pressure is 92 over 44. MAP is 57, just you know, barely better than it was previously. She's got 120 gauge IV. Um, she still looks kind of and feels you know, sort of unwell. Um, what do you want to do? What's your kind of initial take on these sorts of patients? What are the you know important decision points and things that you want to figure out early or uh, or get done early? Hey, can I interject a question real quick before we get going in the case? Because this is something I always struggle with: is when when is it appropriate to call you guys for GI bleeds? Do every GI bleed should I call you or or is there certain criteria that you like to see before you want to be bugged? Okay. 
so we can take a step back and ask that and answer that question first, uh, and then sort of delve into how a patient like this uh, I would like to manage in the ideal way. So when I hear about someone with a potential bleed, I basically have two uh, two uh, major branch points. The first one is, do you think they're bleeding and do they have cirrhosis? I definitely want to hear about them, and we'll we'll talk about the timing of the procedure. Uh, but cirrhosis plus bleeding always. Uh, the stakes are a lot higher, and we'll talk about that particularly for this patient. And then if you're, if you're thinking about GI bleeding in general, and you're thinking, well, like, there's a possibility that this person could just have outpatient follow-up, how would one quantify that in a, uh, in a way that is using the most generalizable language? So the best tool that one has in the emergency department or on initial evaluation on the wards to stratify one's risk for bad outcomes, given your suspicion for GI bleeding, is called the Glasgow-Blatchford scale. It was actually developed probably 10, 20 years ago by a couple, the Blatchfords in uh, Scotland. And uh, basically what they look at is the heart rate, the hemoglobin, blood pressure, whether or not they have liver disease, and whether or not they're having uh, melanin at the time. Now, this person fails the Blatchford score on a variety of accounts. One, the hypotension. Two, the fact that their BUN is high. Uh, three, the liver disease. Four, their hemoglobin is, is awful. So we already know that this person either meets my uh, pretty thin criteria, cirrhosis plus bleeding, or this sort of internationally validated metric, the Glasgow Blatchford scale. Now, are you doing that math for each patient, or it's just sort of capturing what your gestalt is anyway? It's, it's basically capturing the gestalt, but it's programmed into me. I have become one with those calculators. <laughs> but in my, in my career right now, I'm, I'm generally managing people who have cirrhosis and bleeding, and I'm really thinking about uh, when can I do a procedure? And there are times when someone comes in with bleeding where I think that a procedure might not be indicated. There are rare circumstances, typically around uh, someone with chronic blood loss who's had a recent procedure, and that does not apply in this case. So in general, the story that you've told me has already sold me on the role of endoscopy. But before you get to endoscopy, let's just talk about a couple of things. There's a, there, uh, there's a few things that are amiss here. Number one is that this this uh, poor lady has a 20 gauge uh, IV, and uh, and we know that this is suboptimal, and sometimes it's the best you can do. But if you can do better and get a large bore IV for somebody who has an unstable blood volume, then I would really appreciate it, and so would she. And there's other important parts of the medical management of gastrointestinal hemorrhage that come before the endoscopy. And I don't know if we should talk about this now, but we, we definitely should. Certainly. So before the endoscopy happens, you know, the, the standards, like the, the guidelines say that we should do this endoscopy. Some people say, some societies say within 24 hours, some say 12 hours. And uh, the reason for that is that we've got some work to do, and sometimes it's important to recognize that bleeding can be intermittent, as is likely the case for this lady, uh, and uh, we want to flush that blood out of the stomach. So what's the key cookbook for optimal management of bleeding for a patient with cirrhosis when they're coming into the hospital? Ideally, what I would like to hear is that this is a woman who has great 
uh, IV access. Two, that she is getting a vasoactive medication. Because the underlying cause of bleeding in someone with cirrhosis, portal hypertension, is varices, portal hypertension. And there is a medicine that will reduce that portal hypertension in the next hour or minute as soon as you start infusing it. And that is octreotide in the United States or in the United Kingdom, Europe, terlipressin. Now, if you do not necessarily suspect that this person uh, has cirrhosis, then oftentimes people will get a proton pump inhibitor. And, uh, and that's a decent medicine. It's by no means a panacea for ulcers. Uh, it's probably not going to hurt them unless you just continue them on the PPI for the rest of their life, which is not uncommon. But here's the key thing about that decision for a patient with cirrhosis. One is that a PPI does nothing to treat variceal bleeding. Two, octreotide is a somatostatin analog. And somatostatin revs up the gastric D, D cells. And it what that effectively does is it shuts off gastrin in the stomach. You, it is the step before the proton pump. So a proton pump inhibitor inhibits the influx of acid into the stomach. But somatostatin shuts off the engine to the pump in the first place. And both of these medicines, PPIs and artriotide, will raise the pH of the stomach to the same degree within the first day of the infusion. So, octreotide. And then, something that people forget about half the time when we look at uh, how good we are with taking care of bleeding, the one quality metric that is often missing is the use of antibiotics. Now, why would someone give antibiotics to someone who's bleeding with cirrhosis? And uh, the truth is there's probably a few things going on. One is that there are high, there's a higher likelihood of bacterial translocation, bacteremia, and spontaneous bacterial peritonitis if this person has ascites. So that antibiotic actually prevents that kind of harm. It reduces overall levels of inflammation and, by some magic, reduces the risk of re-bleeding. And then also we do things to patients when they're bleeding. We put in Foley catheters. We put in um, other indwelling uh, devices. And uh, patients with cirrhosis are just more likely to get infected. And you're just talking specifically about those with cirrhosis. Cirrhosis, that's right. Only with cirrhosis is antibiotic prophylaxis indicated. But if you think that this person has cirrhosis, giving them a gram of ceftriaxone when they are bleeding before the endoscopy, you've got it made. Now, this patient is not known to be cirrhotic. Maybe you have some suspicion about it. In that case, would you just err on the side of treating them like a cirrhotic? Yeah, so I think that uh, it all depends on that one-liner. And, and you've, you've told me about a history of alcohol, and, and so I, uh, I do worry about it, right? I will probably ask to look at the chart and see, do I think that this is someone who could potentially have cirrhosis? I'm looking at whether the AST is greater than the ALT, whether their platelet count is less than 150, whether they have an elevated bilirubin or an INR to sort of seal the deal to me. But when I hear about alcohol and bleeding, my, I'm, I'm asking myself the question, how confident am I that this person is not having a variceal bleed? And at this point, I am not confident they are not having a variceal bleed. So I will err on the side of caution and, and endoscopize this person within 12 hours. Is it, maybe this is a digression, but it, is it uh, useful to 
prove the diagnosis of cirrhosis, you know, maybe during this admission in someone like this, or you can kind of cruise along treating them um, expectantly and maybe get an outpatient workup? Oh, so that's a very good question. And um, there's, there's a couple of ways by which one could fall into the positive diagnosis of cirrhosis here. One is that you would have an index of suspicion because of the Put the potential etiology here, alcohol. Two, the lab values would be interesting. So if this is someone who presents with thrombocytopenia, right, this, that's, I, I, I tend to worry about cirrhosis. Now, the liver makes thrombopoietin, the growth factor for platelets. Portal hypertension grows the spleen by backing all of the blood into it. And the large spleen becomes like a platelet hotel in which all of those things will hide. These things will reduce the overall platelet count. And so when someone has a potential liver disease, i.e. alcohol in this case, and they have thrombocytopenia, the your index of suspicion for cirrhosis is raised. And then when I put that camera in her stomach, and if I see something that looks like the stigmata of cirrhosis varices, boom, she has a diagnosis of cirrhosis. And I'll ask for an ultrasound or a CAT scan to support that clinical diagnosis. But outside of that, you don't have to go. You, there's, there's no role for a liver biopsy for this lady. She just wants you to take care of her bleeding and make sure she has appropriate follow-up after that. Okay. Now, you said something interesting, which is that uh, octreotide lowers the, the gastric pH about as much as a PPI. In a patient where you don't know yet if they have varices or uh, maybe an ulcer, does that mean you would put them on octreotide and not a PPI? That's correct. So, you know, sometimes you are fighting over the IV access. You know, what, and, and what is more important here, to give them a, uh, a PPI drip, which is still done in many centers, or uh, uh, and octreotide at the same time. So in, in some cases, it's actually important for the, the process of care for the patient. But then two is that um, the octreotide today does the exact same thing that a PPI does. So I'm always telling the fellows, like, get this PPI out of the note. Because today, the octreotide is going to do the same thing to the gastric pH. Now, there's this phenomenon of tachyphylaxis, where uh, this effect on uh, acid secretion in the stomach begins to wane likely within 24 hours. But that's more than enough time for me to sort this out. So I advocate for no use of PPI, typically in patients with cirrhosis. And, and, and you might think, well, what's the, what's the harm? And by and large, there's not that much harm. But PPI costs money, one. PPI probably increases one's risk for things like SBP and Clostridium difficile infection. And so if we can get away from that, it's for the best. And again, it does not treat varices. So you mentioned the people that are on the PPI drip along with the octreotide. So let's. what about in non-serotics? Is there a benefit to doing a PPI drip versus BID dosing of PPI? Oh, so that's a that's a, a good question again. So in general, in my shop, we have learned the data, and by and large, patients do not ever receive PPI drips any longer. Uh, but it still happens frequently throughout uh, the United States. So the evidence for PPIs is less firm than one would have hoped. So in general, uh, these are not magic bullets. And more PPI is not necessarily better. So in general, head-to-head, twice-daily IV PPI 
is just as good as a PPI drip. Now, sometimes if I go in there and I find a crazy ulcer and I did all of these interventions using cautery, clips, and and a wing and a prayer, then I may ask you to do a PPI drip against my uh, my uh, teachings. And that's just, that's just me telling you, I'm so worried. I'm not sure what else we can do. Uh, but that is not what you would judge uh, a uh, generalizable rule upon. Now, you've been talking like it's a given that um, what you want to do is an upper endoscopy, an EGD. Um, is, is that obvious, though? Um, I mean, it, it sounds like this patient has some characteristics of an upper GI bleed, uh, but she has been passing stool per rectum, or blood, rather. Um, do you feel the need to prove that in any way? Um, do, are you always going to err on the side of going in from the top? Um, what's your approach? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. Um, by and large, a colonoscopy, there is no rush uh, to, to do that when somebody is otherwise stable. Uh, the benefit of early colonoscopy is has been established in multiple randomized trials that multiple people, including myself, have meta-analyzed. And essentially, it may just reduce length of stay, but does not improve survival or freedom from things like IR embolization or surgery. Early so meaning how early? Or early meaning within 24 to 48 hours. Okay. Now, an endoscopy is something where that is, we do know that there are people who have a mortality benefit from early endoscopy as quantified by things like that uh, Blatchford score. So colonoscopy in an inpatient who hasn't been going through a prep, has been eating whatever they want for the past week, is often uh, quite difficult. And the yield, the potential for me to change the course of this person's condition with that colonoscopy is super low. The time when a endoscopist goes in there and finds a bleeding diverticulum uh, that they can clip or band or cauterize is uh, case reportable. Everybody gets one in their career. But on top of that, I'm hearing about a, a lady who's not felt great for a while, has had, who is walking into her clinic with a hemoglobin of five. And what this speaks to me is somebody who has either a uh, slow or intermittent bleed that is uh, clinically significant. Diverticular bleeding will present with rapid fire, bam, 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 red blood. But I've heard more about dark stool, fatigue, and uh, a, a subacute course. And that, to me, sounds more like varices, peptic ulcer disease, or super bad gastric antral vascular ectasia. Is it ever useful to uh, place an NG tube in lavage? Yeah. You know, uh, I think that the emergency department literature uh, is such that they, they tend to think of that as a thing we do for no reason. And um, a, a lavage in somebody who is super sick and unstable uh, should have a relatively high negative predictive value. Uh, where you st would start to think about other potential causes for their instability, including but not limited to sepsis, which, uh, you know, if somebody is coming in hot with septic, they're entitled to have some melana because that is really hard on your gut epithelium. So a lot of people will ooze some blood and get mildly ischemic. But the question is, are they sick and unstable because of bleeding? And oftentimes an NG tube uh, will solve that. Now, where I'm at, 
where we actually have a fellow just living in the hospital waiting for your phone call, there is few cases where I'm going to uh, need to hear the results of an NG tube. The fellows know that if somebody seems like they're bleeding and sick as quantified by something like that Blatchford scale or just by your gut feeling or the, or the consultant saying, I'm worried about this patient, we're doing an endoscopy that night. Uh, are you concerned at all about placing an NG tube in somebody who might have varices? No. And there's two reasons for that. One is that we actually have pretty good retrospective studies to suggest that this is not going to uh, cause a problem in somebody who hasn't recently been instrumented. Now, I don't want you putting an NG tube down there after I've put rubber bands in their esophagus. That's another story. But an NG tube doesn't cause trauma to, uh, to, to start a GI bleed. And then two is that if we are t- talking about NG tube, you are asking the question, n- does this person need to be scoped today? And in that case, right, I'm on the hook to come in if this person starts bleeding. So even in the worst case scenario, we have already decided that this is somebody who needs to have a procedure if I have found something. And so you have backup and I'm, I'm there for you. Uh, what, if anything, is the role of imaging at this early kind of triage stage? And I'm thinking particularly of like a CTA. Okay. A CTA does often happen to patients with this presentation. But if I were this patient or if I was there with you, I would vote for an endoscopy prior to the CTA because it smells a lot like an upper source. Now, if this person is unstable with bright red blood and uh, we are worried about uh, diverticular hemorrhage, a CTA is the right uh, option. Because by the time I get my cart set up for a colonoscopy, the patient is going to be in big trouble. And then two, it's just going to be like that scene from The Shining when the elevator doors open and blood pours out everywhere, obscuring your visualization. This colonoscope is a humble device with a very small camera. And to assume that you can sort through a torrent of blood to find one baby blood vessel causing this trouble is uh, hubristic. So CTA is the right way to go and interventional radiology for severe lower GI bleeding. But in this case, if an endoscopist is telling you to get a CTA for this presentation, I would push back on it. Is it ever the preferred uh, approach for a presumed upper GI bleed? No, because the first, uh, see, see, first of all, the blood supply to the foregut is sufficiently redundant to make an embolization procedure less uh, confidence inspiring. You can, in the colon, go in there, find that blood vessel with, with a, a laser-like precision and stop the bleeding Heroically. That's what an interventional radiologist can do. In this case, you basically embolize a large territory that can be backfilled by another blood vessel altogether. So from strictly from a standpoint of who has the highest likelihood of success, it's going to be the endoscopist. And on top of that, you, you do need, you, you do get some, uh, localization from the endoscopy, whereas the colon, colonoscopy, uh, colonoscopy might not be able to tell you where the bleeding is coming from owing to its limitations. An endoscopy will tell you where the bleeding is coming from. All right. So the patient needs probably an upper endoscopy. Um, the final question I think is usually when. Now, 
this particular patient has arrived to the ICU and you heard about them maybe 8 p.m. When would you do the scope? So uh, there's a few things about this patient that allow us some flexibility. One is that she's uh, alert. uh, And two is that while you're not getting a robust response to blood, uh, she is not uh, falling so far behind that we can't just keep up with a unit uh, or two. So we definitely have time to do this right, to make sure that she has appropriate IV access, that she's in the unit, be it the part of the emergency department, the ICU or the OR where I can do a procedure. And I would say that sometime between six and eight hours is roughly when I am doing a procedure on a patient like this, where we think that she is sick. She's clearly got a blood loss problem. She's hypotensive. And there's not much more work that needs to be done to stabilize her. In fact, like this is kind of like the perfect patient for an early endoscopy where she's not uh, uh, in shock because of her blood loss. And we don't need uh, to make sure that she's fully lined up and have multiple pressors going and, and a and a large transfusion uh, for her. This is somebody where we can safely do a procedure provided that blood is available and she's in the right place. So I'm thinking I'm leaning on the side of early here. And again, I'm, I'm using those soft signs like what her hemoglobin is, her, uh, her BUN, her blood pressure, her, and, and the, uh, and the fact that she's got melina, not, not, uh, bright red blood to tell me that this is someone who needs an endoscopy likely within 12 hours. And I just want it to be done with the right team around me. So you would aim for within six, eight-ish hours, essentially kind of when when you could, but you yeah. know, you're not running through traffic or rolling ankles to, to get yeah. to it. I mean, we all want to go to sleep too, right? So that also plays a role into things. This person come in at eight, eight o'clock. So um, I like like waiting till 12 hours because a guy, a society guideline says that that's okay. She's probably going to be alive and, and probably not going to have any complications if we, if we just keep her going, but also at the same time, like, let's just do this now. Well, so is, are there practical considerations here? Because I think in, in very many centers, maybe those who, who don't have a, a GI fellow sitting around waiting to scope somebody, um, the, the chance of getting endoscopy done urgently or emergently overnight unless you are absolutely pressed to it, is um, pretty slim. A lot yeah. of these people end up getting scoped in the morning, if, if not later. Yeah. Is, that, uh, is that just inevitable because you know, there's only so many human beings who occasionally have to sleep and then be in clinic the next day? Or, I mean, should that not be happening? Actually, you know, so like I said, I, I am not too worried about our ability to support this patient. An early endoscopy will likely shorten her length of stay. It will probably reduce the amount of blood units that she needs over the course of this hospitalization by one or two with a, uh, you know, a, a small range. Um, and, but, um, uh, it's not going to make the difference between life or death or control of bleeding, most likely for this person. So you, you can only do what you're resourced to do. And in this case, if you, if we have to wait 12 hours, 16 hours, everything is going to be okay. But, but where I'm at, I'm just telling you about how ideally I, I would handle it if somebody called me about it. 
Is it useful to have surgeons involved in a case like this early on? I think fairly often we'll have someone like general surgery see the patient just in case they end up needing them. And then, I mean, the chance of that is is very slim, although once in a blue moon. But we always sort of feel like it's better to not have to make that call when yeah. you really do need them. I mean, what do you think? Are there certain patients who surgeons yeah. should see or... Okay, so um, so the the surgeon the the role of the surgeon is best reserved for the patient who fails first line therapy with endoscopy and who is requiring significant blood transfusions after that procedure, and so there comes a point after ten units of blood uh, that you start to wonder, will I ever be able to control this medically? And that role is ba- you're basically asking, does this person need like a gram patch on a, a duodenal ulcer? Do they need to have a a a, a bill roth, you know, in the next in in the next couple of days? And that person, quite frankly, in this era where we have flexible endoscopy and PPIs, is actually quite rare. So the role of the surgeon in upper GI bleeding has been marginalized as a function of endoscopy. And that's actually a good thing. Now, when a person has cirrhosis and their bleeding is portal hypertensive, surgeons were life-saving until we had endoscopy and until we had interventional radiology. And at this point, I, I remember the names of the patients who've required a surgeon to address bleeding. That's how rare and shocking and special those cases are. So you don't generally think it's important to consult them until there's really some reason. Oh, yes. All right. So this particular patient, um, you are consulted, you say, all right, we'll we'll plan to scope. Um, You're sort of, your team is putting around, you know, kind of starting to think about it, Um, but nothing is really ready to go. And then meanwhile, what's going on in the ICU, the patient still looks like they need some blood. So they had been ordered for some more. In the meantime, um, she passes another large stool and also starts to vomit some coffee grounds as well as maybe some more reddish looking blood. And her blood pressure drops. It's 80 over 30-ish with a map of about 45. They bolus a couple uh, liters of normal saline with just a very transient response. And they had planned to give some more blood, but her blood pressure really just continues to circle. They start some norepinephrine just to temporize her, and it rapidly gets titrated up to their max dose. Um, so they place a, a cortis sheath. They start a massive transfusion protocol, and you get another call sounding a little panicked. Now what do you want to do? Okay. So it, it, it's, it's, it's actually quite interesting because this story is told with the level of detail that you, you have clearly – uh, met a patient like this in a situation like this, and and so and so have I. So this is a this is what you worry about when a patient comes in, and patients with cirrhosis they will they will crush you because they are typically quite resilient uh, by by way of personality and composition, and they will hold it together until the very moment that they cannot. And it is it pays to assume the worst and act. In that way, and so that's where I tend to err on the side of endoscopy. And uh, I have a couple of comments. 
One is that when I am planning to do an endoscopy for someone in whom I suspect that they could have uh, variceal bleeding, or let's say I keep assuming that this person has cirrhosis because, you know, I'm a hepatologist, and if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. But let's just say you, 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 you remind me this person may not have cirrhosis, but now they're vomiting. Um, any ble- bleeding that includes hematemesis or the potential for hematemesis should should have a uh, mechanical ventilation during the procedure. And this sometimes requires some negotiating with the team around me. But once you sedate this person and put them on their left side, then you are risking making this situation a mess with aspiration. So intubation is a excellent idea uh, to do. Uh, when the when the dust has not been disturbed. Now, things are th- pretty spicy in the unit, and an intubation is going to seem like a bit of a stretch, and we will definitely have regretted not doing it earlier. But intubation is very important. The second comment I want to make is about massive transfusion. Now, GI bleeding uh, does not by itself necessitate a massive transfusion protocol. And cirrhosis plus concern for variceal bleeding does not equal massive transfusion. And so many times I will actually see it just ordered because somebody fears a fire hose has erupted out of somebody's varics. That is very rare. In this case, we know that this person is dropping her blood pressure and massive transfusion certainly seems like a great idea. But in oftentimes, I will see people come in with a hemoglobin of eight, they're talking to you, and then the cooler arrives miraculously, and it's all being dumped into the person. So that does not benefit the patient, because over-transfusion will increase portal pressure and beget worsening bleeding. Now, and on again, the first... you're talking specifically about those with varices. Exactly, about those with varices, right? Um, and then in general... You know, if it was somebody without a cirrhosis and portal hypertension, this person probably deserves a massive transfusion protocol. But most people with bleeding, you can get by just watching things, particularly if you know that this person is about to have the procedure that they need. The other thing I will say is that sometimes if you're, if you're rounding with fellows, they will quote to you a study that was done in variceal bleed, in cirrhosis bleeding. Most of it was varices, uh, where it was found that a hemoglobin target of 7 to 8 was ideal uh, to improve overall survival for patients with bleeding. And they will say, you know, this is the target, and they'll, they'll try to interfere with what you're doing even. Um, so this is a problem because all of the patients in that trial, which was published in the New England Journal, I think 10 years ago now, uh, had already had hemostasis achieved. So if you're worried that someone has unstable blood volume and somebody is quoting a trial to you from 10 years ago, you are, you have my permission to tune that person out because this is the time, this is not the time to apply that trial to this patient. Now, after you have banded their varics and they have a hemoglobin of 6.9, then please do not give them any blood. Yeah, it's sometimes entertaining. Someone's pouring out blood and we're massively transfusing them so they don't code. And someone comes by and writes a little note saying something like, gently transfuse. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, do you know what we're doing here? So um, I just want to bring that up because uh, it, it is often discussed without the context of that these patients have achieved hemostasis. So 
So now the patient is sick and intubation is going to make her blood pressures worse. Uh, but this is someone who needs their procedure now. Now, if this um, was lower GI bleeding and they weren't vomiting blood, then I would be more inclined to send them to the CT scanner and think about interventional radiology to handle this. But now I, 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 I'm worried about this patient. You know, the odds that we're going to be able to fix this is declining because she's clearly sicker and much more unstable. But the right person to do the procedure at this time is an endoscopist. In some cases, you will hear someone say, they're bleeding so much, I don't think we'll be able to visualize what we need. Go to CTA so they can, you know, think about embolizing it. Is there truth to that? Yeah. So, um, I, again, like, uh, that might, that might be true, but, um, I have been doing endoscopy in this situation for a long time. And I cannot recall a time where I did not provide meaningful data about the localization of the lesion with the endoscopy. And, um, an interventional radiologist, uh, would like to know like which vascular territory to target. And that CTA is a, is going to require that this person goes down into the basement and is partially unsupervised at a time that they are quite sick. So I, I'm not sure that I buy that. And then two is that, um, I would never, uh, I would always, uh, like, I'm, I'm, I'm worried when this patient is bleeding, you know, like, like I, I'm getting nervous even though I have the potential skill to stop it, right? Like this is, it's a tough time. So I empathize with that feeling, but there is still a very good chance that you'll be able to visualize exactly where this is coming from and stop the bleeding yourself. Um, assuming that you won't be able to see it in the foregut is a mistake. Now, in a patient where you, you don't know if it's variceal or perhaps you do know that they have a history of varices either way, um, and you're, I mean, you're planning on doing an emergent endoscopy, but you're not there yet. It, is it useful for the team that's there to try placing some kind of balloon tamponade device, Blakemore, Minnesota tubes, whatever they can dig out of a drawer? Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's a that's a very good question. And and like, let's say you're practicing out in the middle of nowhere, and nowhere, and no one is available, and you assume that this person has. Uh, cirrhosis and varices, then at that point, balloon tamponade is a reasonable strategy. But as long as there is a endoscopist who can come in, then I, the, the first attempt should be one towards a durable solution for their bleeding. A, a balloon is a temporizing measure that has risks of things like esophageal per perforation. So I would favor using that as salvage therapy. So the devices are um, have their own risks, not always successful. So if there's any kind of reasonable window when you're going to get a scope in there, just skip it. But if it's going to be like hours, then maybe. Yeah, and like if you're if you're worried about this person and not being able to to uh, keep up with their blood loss, then by all means do that. And it should be the person who is most familiar with the device who is doing it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the time that's that's nobody anymore. Yeah, yeah. So you know, in this case, right, it is rare, and that's because uh, we're pretty good as hepatologists at preventing bleeding. Like we've got medicines that really work for this, and uh, endoscopy is super effective. But it's it's still a, a skill that needs some practice. 
But anytime I do it, it's going to be a year or two since the last time that I did. So I'm watching YouTube videos about Blakemore placement. And, and in particular, I'm thinking through just this, the, the steps. Like putting a tube in someone's stomach, That you don't need anyone's help. As long as you can see that it's in the stomach and then you confirm with a radiograph that you ha- are inflating a balloon inside a stomach, then that particular skill is so uh, limited that like anybody can do that. But what you have to practice is, well, what are the steps that I need to go through before I put a balloon into this person's stomach? I need to have all of the devices that will hook it up to suction. I need to have the right um, uh, 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 syringes to inflate the balloon. I need to have the right clamps to make sure that it's not losing um, uh, air. I need to have a a portable x-ray at the bedside to confirm the placement of the balloon. I have to have the RT crew at the bedside so that I'm not messing with their rig, their, 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 um, end, uh, their endotracheal tube. And that, uh, I, I have thought through like, what do I need to document at what distance at the incisors, uh, is this tube when it is in the right place so that everybody knows if you move the patient where you have to play, where you have to pull the tube back so that it's, it's providing hemostasis. All of these things are lost in the heat of the moment. So it's, it's important to just watch one of these three minute videos or pull up the cookbook for Blakemore placement that somebody wrote for your, um, your standard, standard operating procedures, uh, so that, uh, you've thought through these, uh, necessary steps. Now, I have a theory that I, I have never seen evidence for, but I'm going to propose it to you, and you tell me what you think. Um, if you have a patient who is truly massively bleeding, and um, they've been on a BID PPI, um, and so maybe they got 40 milligrams of pantoprazole a couple hours ago, but since then they've lost and you've replaced their entire blood volume once or twice, it seems to stand to reason that there's no longer any PPI in their blood. Is it reasonable to use a drip in these cases? Yeah. So I, 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 you're, you're, you're basically doing blood exchange at this point. So whatever was in their blood, uh, before they lost it is, is gone. But I'm going to come back to the, to the point that I made, which is that a, uh, these PPIs are, are not, it's like putting your finger in a dam. Okay. They are great for slowly healing ulcers up. But they are not going to stabilize the clot of a massive perforated arterial. Uh, they will, they are definitely worth doing. And in this case, where this person is so sick that you're, you're exchanging their blood every few hours, uh, I'm not going to begrudge you the PPI, but that PPI by itself is not good enough. So we agree that this person's blood levels of PPI are unstable and they pro- and you need to replete in some way. Uh, but uh, they need step-up therapy. It's the so, least of their concerns. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. All right, so you, you do arrive and um, you're, you're setting up to uh, put a scope in and the patient's been intubated. And while you're doing that, um, one, of, uh, one of the residents on your team asks, so in, in what cases after we get in here might this endoscopy lead to this patient then going to either IR or to surgery as a as a next step or as a rescue or or for whatever. What what? How might that go? Okay, so uh, the 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 key thing 
for um, surgery is if there's an obvious perforation in the duodenum. Like if you can see gallbladder, right, or uh, omentum, then there's no IR procedure for that, okay? And then uh, sometimes surgery can do um, uh, what – surgery would be just as good as IR. If you don't have IR uh, for massive uncontrolled duodenal ulcer bleeds, um, but uh, – in general, where there is IR, they're going to be the first people to step up. If the question is, can I simply clot off a bleeding uh, blood vessel? So when I go into the stomach and I see a massive cratered ulcer with a huge uh, blood vessel that I cannot stop with my little baby devices that come out of the ports of my endoscope, then I am asking IR to intervene and embolize that blood vessel. Now, there are other tools that have emerged in the last few years that sometimes provide a solution that the conventional tools do not. So there are these things called over-the-scope clips. Their trade name is Bear Claw. And uh, if you're comfortable using that, then those are things that can that are are definitely taking bleeds that would have been referred to IR and uh, solving them at the time of the endoscopy. But not everybody has a bear claw with them. Uh, so basically your, brand, your vantage point here is, I cannot control the bleeding, but it looks like it's a big, a big blood vessel, IR. I cannot control the bleeding and IR is not available, surgery, or there's a perforation surgery. All right. Well, you 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 get in there, and um, that was prophetic because you do see a large, um, perhaps gastric ulcer. There's a, a big visible vessel, and you're able to to clip it, and it seems like you're able to get hemostasis. So, everyone takes a couple big breaths. You get out of there and sail on your way, and the ICU team goes about stabilizing the patient. Is there a situation where this patient could need repeat endoscopy, maybe in the next several days. Maybe their uh, hemoglobin hematocrit is gently trending down. Um, maybe, uh, maybe not. Is there ever a time you would go back in? Okay, so in general, if you have fixed the problem, there's no need for you to go back in during that hospitalization. But it will often be the case that someone's hemoglobin begins to waffle downward. And that could be because of a lack of control of bleeding or that you missed another, uh, you know, metachronous site of bleeding. Uh, or it could be because we are vampires who are constantly stealing people's blood while they're in the hospital. And uh, uh, that has led me to do endoscopies in the past as well. So, that happens, and uh, you may or may not see uh, that uh, the that the clip is still there, uh, and things look pretty good. Uh, so I don't need to look at it again unless something about it made me super nervous. That being said, if you had an ulcer in the stomach, it is standard of care to take another look back in about eight weeks to make sure that it has healed with your PPIs, because there's a chance that it was ulcerated because it was a cancer. And if it didn't heal within eight weeks, then that's a completely different management plan. But second look endoscopy is not a high value procedure. Uh, unless you are convinced to do so by some clinical change. All right. Well, I think we've saved a life. Any uh, final thoughts? What do you want us to take away about taking care of these patients, as particularly as kind of outreach from the, the GI folks to uh, the rest of us? Yeah. So the, 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 uh, the key thing from the side of the 
of the team that is supporting and taking care of this patient is that she has excellent IV access. So this is typically like an 18 gauge or, or larger, uh, preferably two, that she has a type and screen and active access to blood, that she's in a place where a procedure can go down without a hitch that is in a skilled part of the emergency department, the ICU, or we have access to an operating room if need be. And then that um, uh, we are involved early to help be a part of the discussion for timing of the endoscopy. When it comes to cirrhosis, you would add a couple of things to this list, and that is the use of antibiotics, ceftriaxone preferred, and finding uh, some other equivalent if the patient has an allergy to that, and octreotide infusions instead of um, PPI. Okay. And certainly it sounds like in the majority of cases where there's even any reasonable chance of an upper GI source, endoscopy is always the first line Yes, um, with you know, very rare exceptions. Exactly. Okay. All right. Brian, any thoughts? No, I think that's good. It's uh, covered it really well. Um, I feel like this is something that comes up more often than not. And uh, it's good to have a little bit of extra guidance, especially as to, you know, when to call and, and uh, how to, how to get rid of some of the dumb stuff that we do that probably isn't helpful. I feel like anytime we're trying to coordinate with some other service for a necessary procedure, um, it, it's just, it's always challenging, both from logistics and then having kind of a shared mental model so you, you both understand what's happening and, and why, and then actually getting things done kind of in a timely manner and the correct order and all that. Um, sometimes it seems like it would be convenient if you know one team could do everything, but of course, that's not really possible anymore in medicine. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been great to have you back. Well, thanks for having me. It's always good talking to you guys. All right. And we'll see the rest of you guys in a couple weeks as well. Remember, all of this has just been for your information and education. Uh, should not be used as a sole reference for any medical care. And it's just the opinions of those on the show, not of any uh, of our affiliated institutions. Mm-hmm.